at least going to uh, start uh, the lesson. Um, like I said in the, the first lesson, these next lessons for the rest of the series will be um, kind of building from the qualities of Abraham's faith and, and just trying to give a multi-angled perspective of different qualities of that faith that uh, we can learn from and be challenged by. And again, these, these lessons are, are very basic, but uh, this, this lesson I think will be very encouraging as we consider that, that idea of that uh, last quality of Abraham's faith that we looked at just a few minutes ago, being fully persuaded that what God had promised he was fully capable of performing. So the title of this lesson is The Power of God Through Faith. The Power of God Through Faith. Um, I don't know if you think very much about the power of God uh, in your life, but a part of what Abraham perceived was God's nearness. So when, he, when, when it says Abraham believed, it said in the presence of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that do not exist. Um, Abraham perceived God's closeness because God's promise was something that was intimately connecting himself to Abraham and intimately joining himself into Abraham's life so that Abraham's life could be a manifestation and a revealing of God's glory. So in Ephesians 1, and you don't need to turn here, this is just um, kind of some introductory steps to get into 1 Samuel 13. But Ephesians uh, has two prayers, and in the first one, Paul prays for the Ephesians, and I think, you know, for really this, this would apply to any, any Christian. He prays that the Ephesians could receive a spirit of wisdom and knowledge of God, that the eyes of their heart could be enlightened, that they could know what is the hope of God's calling, what are the riches of the glory of, of his inheritance in the saints. Um, kind of interesting language. Not that, not that it's, it's speaking of God as our inheritance, but God being, uh, or us being God's inheritance is, uh, is the idea of that. It's really interesting. And then the, the last thing he prays for in that prayer in Ephesians 1, uh, 18 through 21, he prays that they could know the surpassing greatness of his power that works in us. And he relates this power to the resurrection. He says it's, it's the same power as it was at work when Jesus was not only raised from the dead, but seated in the heavenly places above every authority that exists. And God granted him a name above all names. And it's not an accident that in Ephesians chapter 2, he talks about how we by the power of God in salvation, were raised up to be seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So I say that to say that God is interested in us understanding his power. And God is interested in us becoming interested in learning about how his power works in us who believe. In Ephesians 3, there's another prayer. And he prays in that that we could be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man to know his love and to accomplish the purpose of his love. Um, so it's important to understand God's power, but if you're like me, you don't really, you don't think much about that if you're like me. Um, or that just kind of seems like a, a distant concept, but it's hard to make sense of what that really means because God doesn't turn us all into muscular superheroes when we believe. Uh, so it's obviously something a little more elusive, like the concept of faith. So getting into 1 Samuel 13, um, just some introductory background points to the scene that we're about to start reading about. So this is the, the period of time when Saul was the king of Israel. And he was, at this time, falling from the grace of God. Uh, the promise had already been made um, that, uh, that he would no longer, um, he was no longer going to be the king, but rather someone else would be found who was going to replace him. 
um, and the, the state of the nation was uh, radically diminishing. Um, and before this was the period of the judges. And there's, there's one judge who really, of all the judges, everyone tends to know about, and uh, that's Samson. And if you want to know about power, Samson is a pretty good person to think about. Samson, in fact, was so powerful that in Judges 15, he actually caught 300 foxes. And then not only did he catch these 300 foxes, he like grabbed their tails and like tied them together. And then he lit torches and like inserted torches into these knots and then like let them loose in someone's field to set it on fire. It's a really strange story. And then in chapter 16, uh, he's in Gaza, which is one of the capital cities of the Philistines, who are the same enemies of God that we'll read about in, in 13 and 14 for Samuel. He took up these gates with the bars put them on his shoulders and then went up a mountain to spend the night on the top of a mountain with these like giant gates and their bars. And those stories, when you read them, you're like, why is this even here? Like, what is happening? And I think the idea is God had literally granted, granted Samson like unlimited potential strength. Like when we're talking about the power of God, Samson above every character that he had ever blessed with power, Samson was the man, right? But... Samson in his life, do you know how much Samson had actually changed in his life? Like a a, a substantial difference that he made at really the end of his life? Uh, Samson ultimately changed nothing. Nothing changed. And then Saul now was a king who was anointed, who is like head and shoulders literally above everyone else in the nation. He was like a really tall guy. And before this context that we're about to read, Saul had actually won a great victory. And the people rallied behind Saul, seeing that God blessed him with a great victory over his enemies. But ultimately, look at chapter 13, verse 5 and 6. Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. And they came up and camped in Michmash, east of Beth Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, then the people hid themselves in caves, in thickets, in cliffs, in cellars, and in pits. Um, So the situation was so bad, and the people had lost their courage to such, such an extent that they were like hiding in any dark crevice they could find, cellars, pits, caves, thickets, you know? So imagine like they see the Philistines coming and they see like a good set of bushes, They're like, there we go. There's my new home, this nice thick set of bushes, right? So, and if you go to chapter 13 still, 19 through 23, it says, Now no blacksmith could be found in all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, Otherwise the Hebrews will make swords and spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines, each to sarpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his hoe. The charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares, the mattocks, the forks, and the axes, and to fix the hoes. So it came about in the day of battle that neither sword nor spear was found in the hands of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and his son Jonathan. The garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. So Saul, with all of his like impressive like height and stature and these victories that he had had in the past, ultimately Saul changed nothing. So you've got Saul, who is a, a powerful looking man, Samson, who is like infinitely strong, And these two guys, not only did they not change anything, the situation of Israel was actually actively getting worse and worse. And at this point, 
You could maybe say that it was at its lowest point that it ever had been, actually, despite the efforts of Samson, despite the victories of Saul. And now chapter 14 is really going to be the center of the lesson. These are the circumstances uh, Saul's son Jonathan was living in at this time. 1 Samuel 14. I'm going to start in, in verses 1 and 2. And the way that this lesson is going to go is I'm really just going to tell the story and after telling the story, just make some applications just from the nature of this story. First uh, Samuel 14, starting in verse 1 and 2. Now the day came that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come and let us cross over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah under the pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. And the people who were with him were about 600 men. All right, so this is, this is the scene. You've got Jonathan just with his armor bearer, just the two of them. And Jonathan's brilliant idea is just himself and the armor bearer to go up to a garrison of the Philistines without telling his father. Now, every decision Jonathan makes, in, in terms of like being wise tactical decisions, Jonathan makes about the stupidest tactical decisions he could possibly make every single step of the way here. But what we're going to find, I think, is that Jonathan is actually purposely making very unwise tactical decisions so that ultimately God's strength and God's power would be glorified. So that's the scene is, is Jonathan is living in just about the most discouraging time frame to have existed up to this point. And his brilliant idea is just him and his armor bearer. Let's go up to the garrison of the Philistines. Verse 4. So verse 4, between the passes by which Jonathan sought to cross over to the Philistine garrison, there was a sharp crag on the one side and a sharp crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes and the name of the other was Sine. The one crag rose north opposite Michmash and the other on the south opposite Geba. Then Jonathan said to the young man who is carrying his armor, Come and let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. His armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Turn yourself, and here I am with you according to your desire. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and reveal ourselves to them. They say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand in our place and not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hands, and this shall be a sign to us. All right. So Jonathan decides to go up this, like, rocky crag, and the, for the Philistines, this was, this was very smart, right? Like they've got a garrison, which would be like a fortified area where they could camp and, and rest and kind of have some, some defenses if they were to be raided by anybody uh, who was their enemy. And they've, they've chosen a good spot. So the indication is this, this garrison is on a cliff with these legendary rocks that Jonathan decides to go between. So it's kind of hard to catch in the language of the text, but the northern, the northern rock is actually called Bozes. So you imagine that there's this rock now on top of Jonathan that would lead up to the uh, Philistine garrison. That's Bozes. And then you've got the southern rock that is called Seneh. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, by the way. That's just what we're going to go with. But these, these rocks were so dangerous, they were so jagged, that they had actually been named and they had become famous. And here Jonathan is just standing between them. Again, tactically, this is just about the worst possible position he could put himself in. He's beneath a rock that is so jagged 
that if he's going to go up to the Philistine garrison, he's going to be completely vulnerable to their attack. And if they come down to him, well, to get down, he's got to go down south off this rock that as well is also so legendary it's been named. I don't imagine this was a place that would have been well-traveled. And again, the Philistines obviously were brilliant in using this spot to put their garrison. And to make matters worse, in verse 6 through 11, uh, Jonathan decides to continue to go up, but he tells his armor bearer that there's going to be a very certain sign that'll really tell them if God was with them and going to deliver the Philistines into their hand. The smart thing to do would be to say, if they are going to come down to us, that's the sign God has delivered them. Do you remember Jonathan, like, militarily? Do you remember what kind of person he was? He was an archer, right? So you imagine Jonathan with his armor bearer, mind you, if the, if the Philistines were going to come down and try to get down to him, he could just sit there and like, doo, doo, doo. he could just one by one, as they're coming down and vulnerable, just kill them one by one, right? But obviously that's not what they decide. In verse 10 he says, if they say, come up to us. So he's picked just about the stupidest possible decision to be the sign that God has delivered the Philistines into his hand. But do you sense any lack of confidence in Jonathan in this? I find that very fascinating. He's got this insatiable confidence that all of these unwise decisions are actually leading to deliverance from God. Um, so let's, let's read 11 through 14. When both of them revealed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, the Philistines said, Behold, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. So the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan, his armor bearer, and said, Come up to us and we will tell you something. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet with his armor bearer behind him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer put some to death after him. That first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about a half a furrow in an acre of land. So I think it's important to really, really see this. So after Jonathan tells his armor bearer this, like, great plan that he has, uh, he basically, like, steps out, you know, so that the Philistines can see him, and he just, like, stands there and waits until they say something. And then the Philistines, obviously, the Hebrews have proven themselves to be quite cowardly. So mockingly, they say, oh, the Hebrews are coming out of these holes that they've dug for themselves. <laughs> and then so they say, come up and we'll tell you something. And, you know, isn't that, isn't that smart of them, right? Isn't that smart of them? So Jonathan leans over to his armor bearer and says, oh, that's the sign. Like, come up. God has delivered them into whose hands? Look at the text again in verse 12. What kind of deliverance does Jonathan perceive is going to come through this? Isn't that amazing? He doesn't say, come up after me, for the Lord has given them into our hands. He perceives that this is the sign that God has delivered the Philistines into the hands of the entire nation. He has something much grander in mind than just killing a few of God's enemies and just having kind of a good day, having fun with it. And look at verse 12 again, the end of verse 12. I'm sorry, the beginning of verse 13, the beginning of verse 13. Do you notice that emphasis of how they got up to the garrison? How Jonathan had to crawl on his hands and knees? So think about this. The, the Philistines knew that the Hebrews were their enemies, right? And Jonathan had an armor bearer, so obviously they, they see that these guys have some kind of weaponry or armor on them, so this is going to be a battle of some kind. 
And here comes Jonathan, like, struggling to get up this rocky crag, as you would expect. They could just stand there and start, like, stabbing him in the face as he comes up. Or, like, one of them can just be waiting with a bow and just, you know, shoot them both in the face while they're coming up, right? So they walk up on their hands and knees, and it says in verse 13, they just fell before him, and his armor bearer just kind of stabs them on the ground as he's walking behind him. And I think the image is, as Jonathan was coming up, it's like the, Phil- the Philistines were frozen with fear, and as Jonathan just walks up, they just kind of like freeze and fall on the ground, and then they just need to be stabbed and be killed as they're just walking through. Um, And to make it even more interesting in verse 14, do you see how big a plot of land this happened in? This happened in just a portion of an acre of land. That's a really small amount of land. And how many Philistines were there, by the way? There were 20 Philistines. So imagine 20 Philistines in a garrison and Jonathan climbs up on his hands and knees and kills them all in in an acre of land. Do you think Jonathan was surprised by any of this? Do you think he was shocked when he got up there and the Philistines kind of were frozen and just kind of fell before him? Do you think he was looking at him like, whoa, do you see what's happening right now? And like he looks back at his armor bearer in like shock. I mean, I imagine Jonathan just confidently walking forward and almost like not even acknowledging the Philistines that have fallen down. He's just walking right through them and his armor bearer is just killing them off. And I assume from the agreement that the armor bearer made that he was equally as confident and unsurprised by the outcome. Um, Let's read 15 through 23 and see how this continues to progress. There was a trembling in the camp, in the field and among all the people. Even the garrison and the raiders trembled and the earth quaked so that it became a great trembling. Now Saul's watchmen in Gibeah of Benjamin looked and behold, the multitude melted away and they went here and there. Saul said to the people who were with him, Number now and see who has gone from us. And when they had numbered, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. Then Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God was at that time with the sons of Israel. While Saul talked to the priest, the commotion in the camp of the Philistines continued and increased. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and came to the battle. And behold, every man's sword was against his fellow, and there was a very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who were, who were with the Philistines previously, who went up with them all around in the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines had fled, even they also pursued them closely in the battle. So the Lord delivered Israel that day, and the battle spread beyond Beth Avon. Do you see how excited God was about this? I mean, you look again at verse, verse 15. How far beyond any work of Jonathan did this go? Like, how far beyond Jonathan's going up to the garrison did God accomplish this victory? Um, and I think in verse 15, when we read about this trembling and the quaking um, and the people even trembling, that God was using what Jonathan had done almost like a triggering point to really frighten the Philistines, put them in a state of mass confusion, and then give courage to the people of Israel. But just think about this, though. When you read about what God did here, and it's not often that God literally made the earth shake at any point in the history of his dealing with Israel. It's a very rare thing that God did. 
Usually God will kind of hide his providence behind people in unseen ways to kind of accomplish a a hidden purpose that only people of faith can perceive. So just think about how eager was God, how eagerly was God searching for just one person, just someone, someone to have just some faith and some courage that he was able as much in that time as in previous times in Israel to accomplish his purpose for his people. How much does this show that God loved his nation and loved his people and wanted them to see that he was with them for the sake of their victory? Um, And what I think Saul didn't realize, what Jonathan realized, is their victory wasn't based on an object. And you see how Saul, his first thought was to grab the Ark of the Covenant. Because what they really needed, they needed faith. They needed faith, not some object that represented God's presence. Um, and in verse 21 through 23, you remember, you remember those Hebrews who were like hiding away in thickets and caves? Do you see what happened here with them? And isn't that, isn't that so amazing? That the, these Hebrews who were hiding in caves and like bushes and cellars, that when they saw what was happening and they saw the commotion and the, the fleet of the Pharisees running away from them, that even these pathetic cowards had renewed courage to pursue their enemies once again. And not only that, in verse 22, uh, I'm sorry, in verse 21, there were actually some Hebrews that had lost so much faith in their own nation, they had allied themselves with the Philistines, the enemies of God, right? And they turned around and renewed themselves to their loyalty with Israel when they saw this victory. So in verse 23, God gave them the victory. God was the one who delivered Israel, not Jonathan, but through his faith, God acting powerfully, fulfilled a promise that he had made years before to his people that he would be with them to fight their enemies. You know what's interesting about this too? And thinking about the circumstances the Hebrews were in before this compared to where it took them as we read this. You know, because of of this event, the Philistines would be be camped on, on one side of a mountain and the Hebrews would be camped on the other side. And they'd be fighting and warring with one another and in the middle of that would stand a giant. And a young man would would kill that giant and nothing would be the same ever again. You know, who who is David? Nothing without Jonathan. And maybe this helps to make more sense that when Jonathan saw David after what he had done with Goliath, that his soul became knit to David because what he saw was, here's another man who believes in God. And let let me ask you something. Where did Jonathan learn to think this way? Like, where, does this, where did this really begin? Look back at verse 1. In what Jonathan first said to his armor bearer, Come, let us cross over to the Philistines. And you look at verse 6 again, Come, let us cross over to the garrison. Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. Do you think that Saul and the other people of of Israel, these other Hebrews, 
Do you think they knew their history? Do you think they knew about the things that God had done in the Exodus and the conquest into Canaan where Jericho fell just from people marching around the walls seven times over seven days? Um, do you think they knew about these victories of the past that God had granted his people like Gideon and his 300 men that clearly had no significance based on just the amount of people of Israel, right? Do you think they all knew about those things? I think they did. But somewhere, somewhere as Jonathan grew up, as he heard those stories, he contemplated himself. And in relation to God's promises, he realized that he was actually dead. And he recognized and believed that God is able to call into being things that don't even exist, and he gives life to the dead. And somewhere he understood that the things that God promises, he's actually fully able to perform those things. And then as Israel got to its lowest point, he contemplated the state of the nation and he, he recognized how dead the nation had become. But in, instead of becoming weak in faith, as he saw how cowardly his countrymen had become, how much of a failure his father was, instead of becoming weak in faith as he saw these things, instead he chose to grow strong, grow strong in faith, giving glory to God. And Jonathan recognized that the things that God had done in the past and the things that he had long ago promised held as much relevance as, and power presently as they did in past ages. Right? So my, my first question as we move into application is, what is the Bible to you? How do you, how do you hear God's word? And what is it, what is it to you? Um, is this just history and stories? Is it just facts to be learned? Um, or is there, something, is there something more to it that God hopes for us to learn and reflect on? I want you to kind of hold, hold that thought. And I want to think about another passage close to 1 Samuel. Um, turn to Ruth chapter 4. And I, I want to ask you the question, how does God change the world? How does God cultivate real change? Like, how does his power really take significant form? You know, like we talked about how Samson was a man with, like, literally, like, unlimited physical strength, and yet nothing changed. Saul had victories and was impressive looking, and yet things were only getting worse and worse in Israel. But I'm going to tell you something. 1 Samuel 14 is where the story of history changes forever. But even before that, look at Ruth chapter 4, verse 16. It says, Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. You know, Ruth is not a story with any battles or violence. It's really easy to overlook that little book. It's small. It's really just some people quietly in, again, really discouraging uh, times in Israel. It's just people humbly living and following God in faith, covenantal loyalty, uh, serving and loving one another in a way that reflects the greatness and the glory of God's chiefest and highest attributes. 
not people that were probably very well-known or famous in the nation or seemed to have any impact on the nation at large. But in verse 17, who is David? David is nothing without Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. You know, because the way that even in the Old Testament, God's power took its greatest form was really not through great battles. It was just through people who had the faith of Abraham. And through these couple women and this one man, Boaz, the world was never going to be the same. And it was going to change forever. And to really emphasize the significance of that change, we still reap the benefit of these acts of faith done by people millennia ago. And to think about this further, go to Matthew 27. Matthew chapter 27. The context of Matthew 27, Jesus has been crucified, and he's, in the verses we're going to read, at his last breath. And I'd like for you to just pay close, close attention to the language you should be able to think for yourself and see how this relates to 1 Samuel 14. I'll just, I'll tell you, I think this is here because of 1 Samuel 14. I think this is here because of 1 Samuel 14. And God wanted a connection to be made very directly so that points could be connected between the two. Uh, Matthew 27, 50-54. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming up out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Do you remember in 1 Samuel 14 when one man, when one man had the courage of faith to face God's enemies, enemies that everyone else had lost courage could be defeated. God was so zealous for this victory that he shook the earth to cause the enemy to flee. And then through that shaking, many who had hidden in dark places rose and came out and pursued the enemy, showing the, the, the grand nature of the victory that God had given for Israel, right? Well, look again at verse 51. The earth shook so harshly when Jesus died that rocks were split. And so there was a great quaking. And in verse 52, to demonstrate the, the significance and the impact of this victory, not people who were cowards gaining courage again, but instead those who had courage coming out of the tombs when he had risen from the dead, they appeared to many in Israel. Do you think that gave anyone courage? Do you think that people in Israel and Jerusalem, when they saw what happened to Jesus and the victory of the nation and the Roman Empire, do you think that people, when they heard about Jesus' resurrection and they saw people rise from the dead and enter the city who they knew had fallen asleep beforehand, do you think that changed their perception about the power of God? Do you think that motivated people to renew their courage and have faith? Um, so how does God change the world? How does God change our circumstances? Is it through like 
big events and battles? Is it through these like huge decisions that we make? Like, do we need to go move to a different country and do some great work somewhere to manifest God's power by doing something that looks to people like this great, powerful act? Or is it just that when we hear God's word, when we hear about Jesus, that we contemplate how dead we are in accordance with his promise and purpose, when we just have faith, as simple as it is, the faith to live for God's glory, the faith to be driven by God's promise, and just to quietly and intimately interact with people on the basis of that faith, do you believe that God can change things in your life and in the lives of people around you if, if you do that? Um, so I want to ask again, what is the Bible to you? And why do we have the Gospels in the book of Acts? Did you know that God gave us the Gospels in the book of Acts, not just to show us where the church came from or where the Gospel find its origin, but more than that, that we can be and must be the same people, the same kind of people, doing the same kind of things in the same ways, with the same heart and the same attitude, to give us assurance that what God has promised, he will faithfully perform it. Does that describe your faith? And has the scripture changed your thinking in that, in that way? And my last question that I want to talk about is, have you lost your courage? Can you, can you think about a time when the idea of Jesus and his sacrifice, his resurrection, can you think about a time when that was more exciting to you? When, when losing things for the sake of your faith or having to make sacrifices and, 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 and making choices that put the kingdom first above everything else, when those were easier choices to make, what's changed? And I want to encourage you that we don't need to wait for a Jonathan. You know, somebody here could, could live in true faith and, and live fully for the glory of God, and that could be really inspiring. But ultimately, God doesn't want us to gain courage and place our confidence in a person. He wants us to see the victory that Jesus won on the cross. And through that assurance, to arise and have faith to act and live completely for the glory of God. So is that, is that your courage? Is that how you've responded to the gospel? Um, and, I, and I want to assure you of this too, that it's so easy, it's so easy, even when things are going well and when things are, are encouraging, it's so easy to be impacted in a negative way even by that environment because really as encouraging as anyone's faith may be, nobody's faith, no environment, no local church, it is impossible for that environment itself outside of Christ to produce this kind of faith. And so if, if your influence is just how well this church is doing, Romans 4 will not be your faith. And you may be very encouraged by things happening in the lives of your brethren, but Romans 4 will not be your faith. The only thing the only thing that produces the kind of faith we read about in 1 Samuel 14 is Christ crucified and risen from the dead. If that's the faith we'll have, God will help us to understand his power. 
and will know his glory and want to live entirely for his praise, will want to do his will, not because of what others are doing necessarily. We'll find encouragement in that, but we will do it because of what God has done and promised and accomplished himself. Knowing that what he has done in the past, he will continue to faithfully do in the present. So that's the lesson for this morning. Um, if you're here and you're not, if you're not a Christian, um, it's so important to recognize that your life, as prosperous or as successful as things might be in your life, you're in the same condition as the nation of Israel in Jonathan's time. And God has left it to you to decipher your real condition because of what the promise of his word reveals in relation to your life absent of being joined to his promises. But God is so freely offering a grace that exceeds expectation and understanding if we'll just humble ourselves and believe. Our salvation really is on the basis of faith through the grace of God. And if we'll really see that grace, God will fulfill all his promises. And if you need any help from the church for any reason, uh, now would be a great time to come forward and receive that help as we stand and sing our invitation song.